Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper. It is Sunday, August 25th, 2019. We are just on the verge of uh, Sadie Eleanor Abuhoff's birthday. Oh, that's true, yeah. Wednesday. That's August right. 28th. Happy birthday, Sadie. Happy birthday, Sadie. We're also on the verge of uh, celebrating the uh, nuptials yeah, it's the word. of uh, Zeke Abuhoff and Noel Borg. Uh, and uh, that's going to be fun. Yes. Looking forward to that. Right. Looking forward to seeing the extended Borg family, some of the Abuhoffs, some of the Grangers. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to all the Abbey Hops, really, when you think about it, but fine. No, yes. I meant only some of the Abbey Hops know, will be there. I know, I know, But I, I get know. your drift. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, you, you brought me uh, up Well, to I mean, it's the 25th. It's a big anniversary. Yes, uh, and we're still um, getting it. over celebrating uh, August 24th in the year 410, 410 was the day that Rome was sacked by the Visigoths. Yes, the downfall of the Roman Empire. The or anniversary. as Edward Gibbon put yeah. it, yeah. 1163 years after the foundation of Rome, the imperial city, which had subdued and civilized so considerable a part of mankind, was delivered to the licentious fury of the tribes of Germany and Scythia. Yeah, well, that kind of loads it up. Licentious, huh? Well, uh, apparently, some disaffected slaves opened the gates huh? and let the Visigoths in. Really? Well, that will do it. The uh, that's eleven hundred years is a pretty good run when you think about it, though, right? Yes. Uh, well, the I mean, basically, Rome was uh, just. Uh, um, had really run its course by then. Yeah, that's a so long it was time. Just kind of the uh, Visigoths putting a little dot on the eye. Yeah. All right. Well, it's uh, <laughs> eleven hundred years. Anyway, All right. Big anniversary. Big, big anniversary. So and we have of, some other anniversaries to discuss, but later. Yeah. But we were uh, we were out and about last night. We were at the McCarter Theater in Princeton. We're looking for Visigoths. Looking. No, we were uh, seeing a. Um, what do you call it? Lecture slash performance by Ira Glass. Yes. Of this American life. Yes. Uh, the uh, founder, some would say, or one of the guiding spirits of the podcast movement, certainly of the NPR radio movement, and um, he was kind of interesting. He had a, um, I guess the presentation was loosely titled Seven Things I've Learned," and it was loosely structured around things that uh, he had uh, come to believe were significant for the purpose of his career and, you know, to put on an effective show and, uh, you know, again, loosely. But uh, he did talk about structure. He did talk about what makes a good story. Um, and he's kind of an interesting uh, guy. I mean, I did look it up. We didn't know as much about him as perhaps some others do. Uh, and he's been at this for a pretty long time. He's only a few years younger than we are, actually. And uh, he did, as Granger pointed out to us earlier, and I didn't realize, had a lot of his career in Chicago before he came to New York. Um, and he kind of was up and down. I mean, he helped develop this notion of what we see as modern NPR radio with these stories. 
And the thesis of This American Life was to focus on stories uh, about people who you don't read about in the news, stories that you don't read about in the news. You want to call them everyday lives. You can call them that kind of thing. And somehow draw from those stories and those interviews some texture about what's going on in sort of society as a whole. And I think, you know, he's clearly been highly successful in that, even more successful than I would have realized before I did the research. And I thought he was interesting. What do you think? Yeah, I thought it was interesting. It was a little bit rambling. Yeah. But uh, I will say it was a packed house. Yeah. And uh, people were anxious to hear him. Yeah. And very positive about it. Uh, And, uh, you know, he told a lot of anecdotes uh, about his career Mm -hmm. and about his life. Uh, You know, I'm I'm not sure we came out of it with any particular lessons learned. No. Um, But uh, it was uh, entertaining. Well, he, you know, we were, what became clear, here's the deal. I think one of the things he's got going for him that he uses um, is it's a combination of sort of low expectations and that he comes in, he's not the most impressive physical specimen. He kind of talks in a very flat affect, a very flat voice, and he seems to be extemporizing to just, just sort of musing in a very non-threatening way. It turns out, personality-wise, he's a little bit the opposite of that. He's a control freak. He's totally into preparation. Even in what he was talking about yesterday, you heard all about all the editing that goes on to produce the simplest pieces so that when you think about it, it's, uh, you know, you're listening and it sounds like kind of rambling, slowly, slowly developing interview, open-ended questions, just letting the person talk, not a professional. And it creates an aura of verisimilitude. It sort of resonates in that way. When a lot of it is kind of fairly highly structured, highly edited, again, based on the research I did, control freak. Well, he does mention, or he did mention, that uh, he found his one great talent was editing. Yeah, yeah. So it's edited within within an inch of its life. So it kind of sneaks up on you in that way, right? Well, it's sort of beautiful because uh, it gives the impression of being, you know, very impromptu. Yeah. Uh, very uh, unstructured and uh, yet clearly quite choreographed and right. curated. Right. Uh, and that... To create that. Um, so... And that, that gives you a lot of the impact. You know, it's funny because we were... At one point he was showing how we... The idea of possible putting animated... Uh, pictures or uh, just figures uh, add them to the radio broadcast and uh, and and it, uh, my view I think was your view too that didn't really work because the the radio delivery system the notion that this kind of a low expectations thing it leaves a lot to your imagination you fill it in and it's sort of sketching things out and once you start making it a major motion picture it doesn't work it doesn't carry that well, way well it's just that it limit limits your vision right Okay, what was so rich before when you imagine it in your mind um, just gets a little bit uh, stripped and dumbed down and limited by being actually illustrated. And you say, oh, that's what he's talking about. Um, It's the same same as when somebody makes a movie of your favorite book. Mm -hmm. Uh, So much. uh, You don't don't need that. Yeah. Yeah. So so that was. uh, Well, he also had, you know, I also learned, you know, he went to school with David Sedaris. That's how he knows David Sedaris. They went to Northwestern together. He He's involved in, you know, the the play we saw, the new one, the Michael Babiglia thing. Mm -hmm. It was produced by him. He's Mm -hmm. friends with Mike Babiglia. They Mm -hmm. work together. Uh, He's just involved in a lot of stuff. Um, so he's a very creative guy, and it was uh, it was interesting. It was very interesting, I thought. Yeah, so we had fun. Yeah. You know, 
Thanks to Lisa Walsh. That's Lisa Walsh gets all credit. Got the tickets because right. uh, she is working on uh, the set for the play about Gloria Steinem. Gloria. Gloria. Aptly yeah. named Gloria. Um, so coming up. Yeah. So that was that was a fun night out. Yeah. So we we would both. I showed you an article, which was a review. Yeah, I'm ambivalent uh, about this. What we talk about when we talk about books. Yeah, what we talk about when we talk about books: the history and future of reading. Yeah. By Leah Price, and uh, I'm not sure I really got much out of uh, the description of this book. What sounds like it might be interesting about this book is a little bit of the history of books and right. how people use them and that it's fairly recent that we have this idea that we each have to have our own copy of a book. The Victorians were great borrowers and lenders and they belonged to for-profit subscription libraries. Um, you may have heard of, of things, I mean libraries go way back uh, you may have heard of the free library yeah. in Philadelphia, and there are other free libraries with the concept that you could just go in and borrow. But the, the Victorians also um, had the paying libraries, and then it's the publishers who convince people that that's disgusting. You know, you shouldn't be passing around. Right. These you need your books. own copy. You need your own copy. Well, well the other thing okay. is they they did point out that books have not always been considered an unalterated, unadulterated. Virtue, if you will, that some people thought it was uh, people shouldn't read, spend as much time reading books. It was either a waste of time or it made people too excited or get the wrong ideas or yes, something like that. Yes, there was like a that. thought that cerebral disorder could be brought on by an inordinate fondness for light reading. Yeah. In other words, if you're reading the wrong stuff, right. you know, it's going to drive you crazy. And maybe that's the case. But she also mentions that in this day and age, people are so worried. Uh, that we will stop reading, right. that there's a great deal of enthusiasm for read anything. You know, don't censor well, anything. I think, it's important to... I think the, th the theory behind reading. that is that there's a different intellectual process required of reading as compared to, say, playing video games or watching television. And it's considered a more intense process that ought to be encouraged. And, and it's hard to argue with that, really. Yeah, I, I was a little bit um, flummoxed by... When she's talking about the importance of books and when she's talking about the importance of reading. Yeah, because she certain, certainly you can keep reading yeah. without having actual I, I don't books. know whether it was the, the, the person who wrote the book or the reviewer got lost somewhere in the article yeah. and kind of lost their so way. So I'm ambivalent about this book, but I just thought we ought to bring it up because we talk and we're going to talk more about reading. Also, there was an article this week, maybe you saw it, I think it was in the New York Times about... Um, Bad copies of books. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did yeah, you yeah, see yeah. that? Yeah. That there are editions, especially online, right. that aren't... Um, aren't accurate. Aren't they, accurate. People are writing their own stuff and calling right. it 1984. In order, in order to get around copyright, right. uh, they may publish something that omits uh, right. large bits or changes words. So be careful um, when you're downloading something online because it's for free. Maybe it's not... Yeah, what you think you should be getting? Yeah, uh, because I mean we do rely on okay. those kind of copies, and uh, sometimes they're bad. All right, so you had there, there's something you brought to my attention last week about uh, audio drama, 
you know. It's... Well, wasn't it funny that uh, throughout uh, Ira Glass's um, presentation, he's exhorting you to look into this podcast or, you know, he does at a certain point at the end pretty much say the world is, you know, going to the dogs. Yeah. Except for it is the greatest time of television ever. Right. Uh, and uh, he meant, and he recommended uh, things, but there was a great deal of talk about podcasts, and of course we are, you know, in favor of podcasts. Uh, but there was an article about a week ago in the New York Times um, uh, talking about audio dramas. So uh, every once in a while, we've heard a play on radio. I mean, radio has a great history. Well, it used to be of radio a, plays, uh, yeah, right? Right, exactly. And um, didn't. Uh, well, I think it goes way back to Shirley Jackson, honestly, even before that. Radio plays well, well, way before that. Yeah. Uh, don't be silly. But um, your theater on the Upper West Side, Symphony Space. Oh, Symphony Space, yeah. Used to do short stories. And yeah. didn't they also do plays or not? I don't think so. It was mostly uh, selected shorts. Was, and they still do that. Okay. Where they just read short stories. Um, but, but anyway. These are plays written for radio. It has struck me that, you know, sometimes it is fun to just uh, listen to yeah. a play. Yeah. Um, and uh, they recommended a few. So I can recommend this article uh, called Now Return With Us to the Days of Yesteryear to get you started on what might be some... Uh, oh. Fun. What do you, you liked one or two of the ones that are recommended? Here. Well, I will just say the one that seemed most uh, accessible to me was called The Truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is uh, Jonathan Mitchell's anthology fiction series, creating movies for your ears since 2010. And this has been featured on This American Life. Right. Okay. Um, and uh, so... That's one possible. Yeah, the one the I truth, liked. What, the one I liked was Homecoming, uh, one of the most compelling and star-studded psychological thrillers. Um, aired two seasons since its 2016 debut, starring Catherine Keener, Oscar Isaac, David Schwimmer. Uh, I haven't listened to it, but uh, it sounds interesting to me. Homecoming. Okay, audio dramas. All right, um, but. Uh, Ira Glass also acknowledged that we're all saying, but who has time to put Who's put, to, right. to listen to right. any he, more of And of this course, right. the one thing he said, he said, for example, Fleabag, Fleabag. And of course, we watch Fleabag. So, uh, and then we're carving out time to watch Fleabag. You have to watch Fleabag. Um, all right. But also, just continuing the theme in terms of podcasts and audio uh, takes us to playlists. The Times had, I thought it was a really interesting article. Uh, about candidates' playlists. So each of the candidates have, you know, play music during their appearances. Uh, and they have set playlists. Uh, most of them cooperated and sent to the Times what the playlists were. In some cases, they didn't, and the Times sent a reporter and to actually write down the names of the songs that they played. This is while they're talking? No, this is just for a rally. Not while they're talking. It's the music when they walk up. It's during pauses. It's in between time. And stuff is like this that. all they get permission of the uh, what, musicians? You, no, you don't necessarily get a busy as long as you have. Because the, I know once in a while yeah, somebody there's a conflict, says Trump, yeah. Trump. No, yeah, no, 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 no. They're, they're not allowed to re- use this or. I, I think that first of all, I think that comes up very rarely. 
Uh, and usually they can't say much about it if they've sold the rights to to a clearinghouse like an ASCAP or something. So you that's mean, the publicity legally, thing. But they like they just like a little yeah. publicity. Yeah. Many people know. Right, but that's not, not happy about. But it. but that's not really what this is about. So this is just about what what they're choosing, and it tells you something about each of the candidates. Uh, it doesn't tell you. Uh, it would be naive to say, well, the playlist really tells you what the people listen to because the playlists are curated to appeal to the people at the rallies. And beyond, yeah, and to create a certain ambiance, right? So that I don't think is going on, and no one's saying it is. Well, do you have an interesting one? Or? Yeah, they're all interesting. I mean, I can go through twenty of them, but I'm not going to. But they have Joe Biden's, and you know, the Joe Biden songs are a little older, mostly soul oldies. Uh, the messes in the songs, old and recent, momentum uh, and redemption. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's insist on optimism, undergirded by determination. Uh, Kristen Gillibrand plays basically all women artists because her deal is that she is pro-women. Okay, well, can you give me a few songs? Well, I could give you songs, but I never heard of any of these songs. But let me get to one. No, no, You've no. heard of the Biden songs, haven't you? Uh, yeah, but give me, you're already taking what I need. Okay? So those are necessarily the ones I give the songs from. Uh, Beto O'Rourke's interesting because he was a rocker. He was in his own band, and he's the one who's probably playing the stuff that's the music that he actually likes. Uh, Kamala Harris goes up to here's a song Work That an Empowerment Anthem by Mary Blige um, uh, Cory Booker it's all inspirational stuff to me the most interesting was at the end of the day uh, well Bernie Sanders every song has the word revolution in the title not a big surprise Donald Trump though they have Donald Trump's okay Donald Trump those I could give you those songs because those songs I guess I kind of know and the funny thing is that they are primarily Rolling Stone songs. You know, they're like four out of the 22 titles are Rolling Stone songs. But also, perhaps surprisingly, three or four of them are Queen songs, right? Uh, and three or four of them are Elton John songs. So the Times observes that the, the Trump songs, they're oldies with a swagger, including surprisingly gay swagger, which you wouldn't have expected from Trump. But the other interesting thing about the Trump's playlist and they just report it. They say he opens every rally with Lee Greenwood's anthem, God Bless the USA. And he walks off from every rally with the Rolling Stones, You Can't Always Get What You Want. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. I don't know. Well, Some... that, that seems like a fun article. Yeah, it is a fun to article. To get the most out of it, uh, you have to, read have it to go to, back and It's read a it. thousand songs, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Back to books. Yes. Right. And speaking of swagger, um, there's in the Wall Street Journal has a review of two books. Uh, the title of the review is Dangerous Dynasties, The Borgias by Paul Strathern and The Family Medici by Mary Hollingsworth. OK, so both of these uh, writers have written actually about, they've both written about the Borgias and the Medici. And um, these are fun books, uh, both, uh, you know, weighing in at about 400 pages or so on. But the Borgias, I mean, who doesn't love to read about the Borgias? They're so unforgivingly bad. Uh, and, uh, you know, their lives just uh, surpass well, give us, anything. This is something that's really scandalous. Then give us something scandalous about the Borgias. Well, of course, uh, there's Rodrigo, who you might also know as Alexander the uh, 
Alexander is it the fourth of uh, who was a pope, Pope Alexander the uh, fourth, and uh, he was um, quite. Uh, I'm saying Alexander the sixth. Sorry, uh, just put that uh, capital I in the wrong spot. Anyway. He's the one who um, painted the bulls all over the Vatican uh, apartments. And Pope Julius II said, get rid of those, um, you know, uh, Borgia bulls right away to Raphael, who changes everything. You know, well, so, well, anyway. Something short of scandalous. That when I said something scandalous, the idea of painting bulls is not uh, doing it. I'm just getting started. Yeah, okay. You know, he had quite a lot of children. Yeah. Popes aren't supposed to have children. And uh, he had, you know, well-acknowledged mistresses. He had Cesare Borgia, or Caesar Borgia, however you want to pronounce it, not to mention Lucretia Borgia. Mm-hmm. You remember Lucretia, yes. right? Um, she, um, she was actually very smart. There were all kinds of rumors about how just how close she was to her daddy, the Pope. But uh, she also was a, a great manager. She had a great mind. She apparently helped him out a lot in the Pope business. Anyway, he marries her off. She gets married three different times for various political reasons. Okay, First time around um, to a Sforza, at a certain point, daddy decides this is no longer necessary and is going for an annulment on the grounds that the marriage was never consummated. The husband says, oh, yes, it was. And um, Pope Alexander VI says, I'm the Pope. I would know if my daughter had consummated her marriage. Mm. And uh, anyway, um, he is convinced to give in, and that gets annulled. Uh, The second husband, I don't remember his name, but he is... when. When that uh, marriage has run its course in terms of uh, politi- political advantages to the Pope, he is found dead in, I think, the river. And rumors are that uh, Lucretia's brother mm-hmm. uh, had dispatched him, so to speak. Then she marries your friend and mine, Alfonso d'Este. Uh, and, well... They have actually, he's the Duke of Ferrara. Um, Anyway, they have a very um, long-lasting marriage, uh, but neither of them are particularly faithful. Um, Well, Cesare was a super bad guy. He did things like uh, just um, go up on the balcony and shoot at um, various felons, uh, you know, prisoners for target practice oh, right. with his arrow. Right. Uh, so, anyway, and so anyway, the, the Borgias are uh, pretty shocking and it, it's kind of amazing to read about them. The Medici, of course, weren't as, you know, quite as disgusting, um, but uh, it's uh, kind of a lot of uh, bloody and amazing history. So if you're into that kind of thing, those are two new uh, books uh, by Hollingsworth and Straithern. Then we also have a new biography of Charlemagne, King and Emperor, A New Life of Charlemagne by Janet Nelson. Um, and uh, Charlemagne was uh, a busy guy, a bright guy, a fun guy, 
he had a bunch of wives. Uh, they would die every 10 years or so on, and he, he'd have a new one. But in any case, the one thing I learned from this article was he was a great swimmer. Hmm. Who knew? Who knew? He actually installed uh, Roman baths at uh, his capital in Aachen. And uh, he, he would hold meetings uh, with his, um, you know, uh, entourage uh, in the baths. Really? I know. You're wondering about the whole bathing suit issue. But, there were no uh, bathing suits. There were no bathing suits. We know that. Possibly not. But uh, there you have... Yeah, Charlemagne. Yeah. I think, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I guess that's right. That You know, um, Charlemagne's son, that's what uh, Pippin's about. That's what that story is. Yeah. Son of Charlemagne. This, By the way, this uh, writer, yeah. Ms. Nelson, does not like to refer to him as Charlemagne. Just what is it? Charles I. Oh, oh, Charlemagne is so much better. I mean, it's crazy that you wouldn't use that. Don't you think? Yeah, except there are people who say, he, you know, Charlemagne kind of means Charles the Great, and he wasn't very big. I know. I know. <laughs> Even, uh, it's a good name. Um, okay, so, oh yeah, so this is Player's Nickname Weekend. Uh, it's tough talking about baseball, Mets had a bad weekend, but the fact is, Player's Nickname Weekend, it's sort of like, you know, visiting weekend at summer camp or something like that. They say to the players, what would you like to do? How would you like to write your own name, your own nickname, rather than your given name on the back of your uniforms, and you can wear fancy cleats, and you can write things on your cleats. It, it seems kind of odd. I don't know what the appeal of that is exactly. Uh, the union negotiated this. Apparently, this the players were dying to do this. And so you have this odd weekend where, again, everything's about selling merchandise, where in each team, one team is going to be dressed all in white, the other is dressed all in black, uh, which, among other things, obscures the names they put on their uniforms because they're not in a different color. And the whole thing's just totally bizarre. It's like the Major League Baseball has kind of lost its collective minds. Um they're really flailing about. Yeah, I, I don't know why they do Who this. Who thought this up? But the, the, the journal just complains about the quality of nicknames. This is what gets the Wall Street Journal. They say, uh, in the in the past, you had great nicknames. You had... You know, ah, the past. The past. <laughs> it always comes down to nostalgia. Well, it's ridiculous. Though, because yeah. it's, it's a babe for Babe Ruth. What, what could be better than that? He had a name. It was George, but they called him Babe. And, and you have uh, Lou Gehrig, the Iron Horse. And you have Willie Mays uh, say hey. They called Willie Mays because whenever Willie Mays would meet somebody, he'd say say hey. Except those are three nicknames out of 42 million ball players. I mean, right. they, these guys, they're right. doing the best they can. Uh, the, the journal also has a very odd statistic. I don't know how the heck they came up with it. They said only 24%, it's a precise number of players, are sporting actual nicknames. I don't know what the others are sporting. They're not sporting their real names. There are only one or two exceptions to that. Well, maybe like they Jake just mean that only 24% uh, have nicknames. Yes, people, I know, but people ha, ha, who, who has that information? They're looking at this guy's, first of all, a lot of them are, are in Spanish. They're looking at it and they're saying, that's a nickname, that's not a nickname. No one calls this guy the elephant. He just likes elephants. That's in the article. So uh, it's kind of weird. In any event, uh, mostly it's just this weird promotion. I think you put your finger on it. It does look, you just watch the whole weekend and say the MLB doesn't have a clue. Major League Baseball, you know, uh, what are they doing? So um, there's been a weekend of not knowing who's doing what because you can't read anybody's name. And even if you could, you wouldn't know who it is. Uh, but I think we're back to regular baseball in a couple of days. All right. So this goes under the heading of just being cranky about Baseball no, I just today, I'm right? cranky about the Mets. The Mets lost three games, and it's uh, it's tough to get over it. 
What a surprise. You cranky about the Mets. I am cranky about Well, the Mets. you know, there was another anniversary this week, and yeah. that was August 21st. Yeah. Anniversary of the um, Mona Lisa mm. being stolen in 1911 yeah. from the Louvre. And uh, before that, the Mona Lisa was just another painting by Leonardo that uh, nobody was terribly excited about. Uh, although Leonardo, I guess, liked it because he kept it uh, throughout his life. Um, but uh, once it gets stolen, it becomes everybody's favorite. Yeah, you've uh, mentioned that to me before. Yeah, that that's what causes the excitement. Okay, so a, a, um, a guy sneaks it out of the Louvre under his smock. He's Italian. He keeps it for a couple of years, then takes it to Florence and offers it to a gallery owner, thinking he'll be the hero of, you know, of Italy mm-hmm. for repatriating uh, the Mona Lisa. And uh, he actually gets arrested. Yeah, that happens. Um, and uh, the Mona Lisa goes back to the Louvre. And ever since then, we can't get enough. And it's hit a crisis yeah, that's point. Cra- that's crazy. I mean, it's got to be something more to it than that. That's not It's the celebrity. Only- yeah. It's all about Look, celebrity. I've seen it. You've seen it, of course. It's not the biggest painting in the world. It's kind of a small painting. Well, yeah, it's just a portrait. Yeah. Uh, so there's not a heck of a lot going on. I mean, you know, uh, don't, don't get me started on that. But the thing is, people want to see it. Well, Tourists want to see it. Yeah. So there's a big Leonardo show being mounted yeah. at uh, the Louvre. Yeah. And so they've had to move yeah. the Mona Lisa from its usual galleries to another spot. Yeah. It's causing huge traffic jams and people are being limited in terms of you have to have now a special ticket to get in to see the Mona Lisa. Naturally. And people are going crazy. There was a great picture in the New York Times. Uh, People don't even look at the painting. They photograph it. They hold up their cameras, take a picture and move on. And people say, oh, you can see it much better, you know, um, on your uh, phone, and uh, then you can see really? it in public. Uh, so that's really crazy. It's just uh, another notch on uh, the belt. But meanwhile, this reminds me that uh, at the beginning of the past couple of years, I have been playing a video uh, for a music video for my class uh, that takes place in the Louvre. It's ape shit. Uh, is the name of yes. the video. I know you're shocked. Uh, and it's by Beyonce right. and Jay-Z. Right. And it's really pretty fantastic. I think I've talked about this before, but it is fantastic. It Apparently, the Louvre feels it's responsible for um, uh, helping to increase attendance at the Louvre. Perhaps oh, is I, that right? Yes, they say they hit a new record in 2018, 10 million visitors. And I think it's because of the Beyonce video. They say from the year from the year before, uh, there's a 25 percent increase in attendance, and they say that's large. They think it's largely due uh, look, to Beyonce and Jay Z. Also, let me tell you this: you can now go to the Louvre and take the Beyonce Jay Z tour. So that you you go, they take you around to the different works of art that are featured in. Well, that, that that's going to answer. So I haven't seen the video. I'm the only person in America who hasn't seen the video. But no, but I, you know, when I show it to my students, many of them have not seen it either. But, but does it show the paintings? Is that what's in the video? It does, and, and the um, and that's Jay-Z the point of it? And Beyonce, the dancers kind of interact 
with the different works of art. They're juxtaposed. Uh, it's really um, quite amazing and, and, and quite interesting. Huh. And it, it raises uh, subjects about beauty, about art, about what is beautiful, who is beautiful, um, you know, gender issues, racial issues. There's even a moment when Jay-Z is saying, I said no to the Super Bowl, which is quite funny now because he has said yes to the Super Bowl. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, you didn't know that? No. Yeah, Jay-Z is going to be working with the NFL producing oh, the Super Bowl. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. It's it's. A big deal. Oh, okay. And, uh, of course, that raises political issues as well. Yeah. So, anyway, um, so another little museum update. One of the Lewis Chessmen has been sold. Now, you you know the Lewis Chessmen because I dragged you to a lecture at the Met. Yes, the worst lecture ever. Worst lecture ever. Um I've never forgiven myself for going to that art history lecture and making you go. Um, Interesting subject, not interesting uh, talk at all. Anyway, it's from, uh, you know, several sets of um, chess players that are made of walrus ivory. Uh, dating back to the 12th century, they were discovered in the early 19th century. And this particular piece, uh, which is um, a warder, which is comparable to like a rook, uh, a yeah, castle. castle. Okay, um, a rook. Very good. The uh, the people in Scotland who owned it yeah. had no idea that it was valuable. So someone in their family bought it in the 60s yeah. for five pounds. Yeah. Okay. Uh, not even $10. It just sold this July for almost a million dollars. Well, this is like an antiques roadshow thing, you know? Yeah, uh, once in a while it works out. Yeah, well, but, you know, you reminded me when you talk about the uh, walrus ivory, the one nickname I, I should have asked you about. I'll get your opinion. Pete Alonzo. Right. Nickname. Polar Bear. What do you think? I don't. I don't care. Why? But why is he the polar bear? It, well, well, I, I, there's no reason. But do you think it's a good nickname? <laughs> I don't. That that All right. Do okay. polar bears hit a lot of home runs? I don't know. I, but he, I'm mystified. He just set the he record. He doesn't look like a polar bear. He tied the uh, Met record for most homers in a season yesterday, and it's still August. You just wanted to talk about Pete Alonso. Yeah, you're right. Because okay. he's a Met. All right, go go to Percocet Park. I know we have a bulletin of Percocet Park. Well, there was a headline in the local uh, Bucks County Herald this week. Front page, yeah. below the fold, but front page, mm-hmm. firefighters install smoke detectors in Percocet Park's Victorian cottages. And uh, I just bring that up because... Uh, our buddy Armand, Armand Everett, actually yes. has a cottage in Percocet Park. He's a real estate and magnet, and he's uh, he's now got a property in Percocet Park. With its 63 all-wooden Victorian cottages, narrow access roads, tall trees, single fire hydrant, Percocet Park is a firefighter's nightmare. There you go. You bought into that, Armand. A firefighter's uh, nightmare. But uh, what fascinates me is there used to be um, collections, used to be many more collections of little summer cottages. Some of them were religious organizations, um, you know, there were various groups that would have cottages. These are not winterized, 
Okay, and they're only open in the summer. And there were many more in the past before there was air conditioning. And people would, you know, want to get out of town, uh, get out of the city or whatever, and go live somewhere cooler for a while. And these are charming, interesting. No, it sounds great. It sounds uh, buildings. Sounds great. (laughs) That will go up. Oh, not anymore. Matchbook. No, no, not not now. Now they got the uh, the free. uh, Yeah, the free uh, fire detectors. Okay, so uh, the only obituary we're going to mention is uh, Felice Giamondi, who is a uh, Italian uh, cyclist, bicycle rider. And what's interesting about him, two things. Number one is that he was, until very recently, the youngest winner of the Tour de France. In uh, 1965, at the age of 22, he won the Tour de France. Uh, that was only that was a record in terms of youth that was only broken this year when the fellow uh, Egon Bernal of Colombia is the first Tour de France winner to be younger than this person. Um, and it was even stranger for a 22-year-old to win in 1965 because, strangely, the Tour de France was longer then than it is now. It was tougher then. So much tougher then. I, I can't even imagine I, that. I am telling it you this. impossible. But just to make the point, they used to have a lot of youthful riders in the first stages of the race and as a matter of planning they would take them out of the race after the first few stages because a person that young wasn't thought to be able to maintain that kind of effort over that many days so in any event he was the youngest rider and he was set to dominate the tour de france and other similar tours for years except one odd thing happened and that was a person named eddie Merckx. eddie Merckx came on the scene just immediately after 1965 and he became the dominant rider of the era, so much so that he became nicknamed the Cannibal. Uh, he won five tour de, Tours de France. This is Eddie Merckx. Uh, and there were many, many races where Eddie Merckx came in second and Felice, Ed- Eddie Merckx, and Felice Gimondi, uh came yeah. in second to Eddie Merckx came in first. Right. And So the guy you're talking about, Jumandi, is a second place guy. Is basically the Avis. I, you know, uh, I was going to give France. examples. Yeah, Avis is not bad. What I would say I'm is I'm sure this. he tried harder. Yeah, I'm sure he tried. Well, no. Actually, the style was he was very elegant. And Eddie Merckx looked at he was killing himself. But Eddie Merckx would win. Uh, but there are a lot of guys. Uh, well, to me, the best example, and maybe this is dated, but it's worth it because the U.S. Open's coming up, was Rod Laver was a great tennis player of the 1960s. And a little before that, uh, Ken Rosewall came in second in every tournament. But people remember uh, Rod Laver. If you, in horse racing, was the best examples of Firm than Alidor. Firm won the Triple Crown. Alidor came in second in every race. There are situations like that where, but for the presence of another person, in this case Eddie Merckx, you know, Jumande would be considered the greatest cyclist of all time. Instead, Merckx is. So, in any event, he passed away. But there was a very interesting article in the Times. Uh, on cycling, and it wasn't about professional cyclists. Well, it was basically an op-ed piece, right? Yeah. Uh, by Jennifer Finney Boylan in, from Maine. And uh, the title of it is, An E-Bike Changed My Life. And she says, Since I got the e-bike, I've been riding 15 and 20 miles a day, four or five days a week. It's been a life-altering, not just making me fitter, but also raising my spirits, getting me out of the house and back into the mountains. And she's in her 60s and she's just saying, you know, she always enjoyed writing, but it kind of uh, had slipped away from her recently. And the e-bike just reignited that. Uh, And the... 
it's really changed her yeah. life. And she said uh, there was also a discussion about, you know, you know, what are e-bikes doing? And a couple other people commenting when people first jump on an e-bike, their face yep. lights up. It's exciting and joyful in a way you don't get from a regular Well, you know something? Bike. We've discussed this. You know, I, I get this magazine, Cycling Plus, which is a UK cycling magazine. And it's a great magazine. You have to get it from the UK, but it's a great magazine. And But they, they talk about real bikes all the time. They're, they're not for beginners or anything like that. But the industry is really taking notice of e-bikes and the most sophisticated bike manufacturers like Bianca, in this case, she's talking about specialized or making e-bikes now. And they are real bicycles and they look like fancy bicycles. Uh, and you can barely tell that I they mean, have an e-bike about, capability. You know, is it embarrassing? Like no. you're cheating? It doesn't you're look, not really riding, it looks like a regular bicycle. And everybody is having a blast. But here's my question. Yeah. You know, it seems like they're going to be hard to maintain. No. It seems like, uh, no. you know, they're going to break down. They're going to have issues. You're going to say, no, oh, no. screw it. You know, I don't at think least so. with a bicycle, you just pump up the tires yeah. and go. Let me tell you the only challenge. The only challenge is battery life. So uh, you don't want a battery that's too heavy and you don't want a battery that's too obvious. Uh, right now, you can count on 60, 70 miles on the battery life. Okay, which is good and maybe more than you would ever need. But you got to charge it overnight for that. For the real cyclists, they would like a little more than that. So that's what they're working on. Well, you know, um, only time will tell. It's only going to get better. It's only going to get better. All right. So we'll see. Okay, so uh, that's all we have this week for Tamsin and Read the Paper. Uh, perhaps, uh, well, there's no yeah, perhaps about it. Yeah, come back next week. There'll be more about e-bikes and wine in a can and yeah, but, but But also more about, about, about Zeke and Noel. Oh, yes. Congratulations, Zeke and Noel. And we'll be celebrating that uh, next week and this reporting on it. This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. On the way to L.A.